Welcome to Design is Everywhere, the weekly podcast from the Design Museum. I'm your host, Sam Aquilano. I'm the founder and executive director of Design Museum Everywhere. Each week on our show, we tackle a different element of design and explore how it impacts our everyday lives. Thankfully, we always have the help of a new guest co-host who's an expert in their field, and together we interview a guest about their work in design, because design is everywhere, and so are we. This week, we're chatting about designing common spaces for the common good. I'll be joined by Ron Malice, Executive Director of Boston App Lab, which serves as an incubator for new artistic collaborations throughout Greater Boston's public spaces. And then later on, we'll chat with Daniel Callahan, a multimedia artist, designer, and president of the Roxbury Cultural District. Together, they'll share how they view the role of public art in transforming the ways in which people use and think about public space. But first, a little update from Design Museum. I hope you can all join us on Tuesday, February 15th from 12 to 1.30 p.m. Eastern for our 2022 annual meeting. So this is a free community event. Every year, we make one of our quarterly board meetings open to the public. So you can come and learn about all of our 2022 initiatives, including Design Museum Week, which is gonna be an amazing week-long event, new exhibitions, we're working on a new book project. You also get to meet the staff, the board, the council, in different like breakouts. It's gonna be a lot of fun, and you'll get a chance to see what's coming up and how you can get involved. So the annual meeting, is February 15th, that's a Tuesday from 12 to 1.30 Eastern. And my favorite part of the annual meeting is we actually get to give out awards. So we'll be giving out this year's Distinguished Service Medal to individuals who made a significant impact in the last year. You can register again for free by visiting designmuseumeverywhere.org and there's a link right on the homepage. And with that, onto this week's topic, how can design rethink common space to serve the common good? Common Space, Common Good is an initiative developed by Boston App Lab in collaboration with Hoverlay and with inputs and recommendations from Operation Peace and the Fenway Community Center. Together, they are emphasizing the importance of incorporating the voices of neighborhood residents to conceive, design, and implement art for the neighborhood and for those residents that live there, as well as the people who live and work and visit the Fenway. I'm joined by my guest co-host, Ron Malice. He's the executive director of Boston App Lab, and we're going to learn more. Since the lab's inception, Ron has organized approximately three dozen workshops focused on art in public places with an emphasis on defining the specific public, in quotes, and the place, in quotes. Ron's work navigates how an artwork might relate to both in creation of this new common space and, of course, working with the artists themselves. More recently, Ron has been seeking ways to build on the voices of neighborhood residents to conceive, design, and implement art for the neighborhood. Ron's designs make common spaces for the common good. Ron, welcome to the show. Thank you, sir. It's a real pleasure to be here. Oh, pleasure. And as I said, Ron and I have had many conversations over the years, and now we get to have one on this podcast. So that's that's exciting to me as well. I want to learn about, of course, the Common Space, Common Good initiative. But first, tell us about Boston App Lab. What is it? What's the mission? What do you all do? To give some proper background to this, I I spent 10 years as an urban planner, having gone back to graduate school, got religion, decided this is what I wanted to do. And I did that for, as I said, 10 years with a firm here in Boston, and then started a committee within the Boston Society of Architects focused on what I call art in public places. And I'm not the first person to say that. I got that name, by the way, from a profile of uh, the artist Robert Irwin, 
that was published in the New Yorker a bunch of years ago that a friend of mine directed me to. And among other things, he says that, um, and I'm paraphrasing, by definition, all art is public. But what a lot of us tend to label public art is really needs to be seen as the interplay between the art, the public, and the place. And I think you alluded to that before, to pay special attention to who are we and who's we talking about? Where are we and who's we talking about? And how does what we want to do there reflect both, reflect on both, et cetera, et cetera. So that became a, started as a committee, as I said, within the BSA. And then uh, we gradually morphed into a nonprofit, which is the status right now. As uh, you said, Sam, we developed about three dozen workshops focused on one, some question or another about one aspect or another of art in public places. And then with the pandemic in March of 2020, things came to a kind of screeching halt, at least in the format that we were using. But I started now to think about, well, what in the world does art in public places mean anymore when you can't have a public place with social distancing required? Well, that's been modified, but now we're, you know, who knows if that modification is going to withstand what is going on with uh, Omicron and what have you. But in any event, it's really reimagining different ways in which a, number one, a public is identified, and number two, ways in which that public interacts. So uh, that led to this common space, common good idea. And underlying, and I think you alluded to it, is the people who comprise the common good uh, and create the common space. And doing that, I figured in such a way that you can get, you begin by getting the stories of the people in the places, around the places you're thinking about, and to hear where the links are, where the intersections are, and using those links and those intersections as the baseline for, again, crafting common spaces for the common good. Yeah, I love the the focus on people, right? And we think about that a lot in design, right? Who is going to use this thing? Who's going to live with it? And clearly for the public, <laughs> for public art, the user is the folks who are living and breathing around it, passing it every day. Stepping back a little bit, because I, I love to define these two terms, and you got a little bit there with the common good being the people. What about common space? Like, how do you define common space? Well, you know, there are, there are places by... For example, of course, the Boston Common that have been identified as, in a way, a common space. But there are also places, and I say that in connection with this common space, common good thing, that are the equivalent of desire lines. The desire lines are crafted by folks who, let's say, walk through an empty lot in order to get from point A to point B because it's easy. And gradually, more and more people do that, and gradually that pathway becomes a desire line. But with common spaces, uh, yeah, there are some that have been sort of automatically identified, but uh, there are others that people you don't know about because you don't live there. But when you talk to people and kind of get their stories, you begin to maybe, and I'm making this up, but I don't think so totally, you begin to get the identification of places where people wind up going, you know, favorite corners, or a favorite, uh, you know, storefront in front of a butcher shop, or something, but that becomes a kind of a kind of meeting place, a kind of common space, and sort of related to that too is one of the things I picked up when I was uh, when I did when I was in graduate school in, in planning, and then certainly in practice, is that if you're planning, and it just relates to this, 
if you're planning, you need to begin by going to where the people are on whose behalf you're doing the planning, because they have forgotten more about that place than you're ever going to know. So how do you surface that knowledge and then somehow weave it into whatever it is you and your brilliance think you're coming up with and making sure that it honors you know, the folks who've been living this before you even got there? I've been known to be a little too optimistic, and I just assume that this is how common spaces and public art come together. But can you actually give us like the dark side of, you know, when people aren't consulted that live there, you know, do these things just kind of get plopped, you know, arbitrarily or based on one person's desire, let alone the stories? That's a brilliant question. Uh, and I wish I had a, even a vaguely glib answer. There recently, too, there was, a, there was an installation on the Boston Common. When I first heard about it and heard it described, I didn't quite understand what was going on. And then when I went over to take a look at it, I still didn't understand what was going on. And I don't say it was plopped. I'm sure there were people there. I know there were people there who were sort of enjoying what was going on, but this sort of like dropped from nowhere. I honor that enormously. And I'm not saying that what I'm suggesting is the only way in which so-called art in public places can happen. But what I live for is making sure that the people on whose behalf, again, the art or the place is being identified, have a voice in this. And these voices are honored. Yeah. Tell me about that process. How do you actually go about connecting with people? By asking questions, simply by asking questions. And I, when I was in planning uh, over a firm I worked with, we did a project in Savannah that was a complete redo, um, mostly a complete redo of a, of a particular neighborhood. And in the beginning, what I did was to just walk around and drive around the neighborhood. Then if I was in the car, get out of the car, wander the street. Now I see a bunch of people in front of a butcher shop. And I go up and introduce myself saying, hi, I'm here on behalf of blah, blah, blah. Tell me about this place. What goes on here? And some people will say, get out of my face. Others will say, well, you know, it's, it's, it, it's funny you should ask because we, you know we've done this, we want to do that, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's that it's it's a simple step of just asking, you know, and not being afraid to ask. And on the contrary, uh, and maybe this is me being uh, romantic, I'm going to make an assertion that people like to be asked, and too many times they're not. Once you have those stories, what's the next step in terms of creating a great common space that maybe has art associated with it? The next step would be to almost uh, like post them on a board. And I'm not saying, you know, it's one thing and then, they, then the next thing. But as you're hearing these stories, begin to extract the commonalities, you know, the, whether they're uh, specific places, whether they're attitudes, whatever they are, and both about the place now and also asking people, so how would you envision this place that you're talking about in about three years? What would go on there? It's those adjectives and adverbs and nouns for that matter that bubble up and that become, again, as I say, the uh, core of what you're hoping to do. And again, hoping to do it with input, continuous input from the people. And as I say in you know, this project description, this is not a one and done deal. This is something that if, if properly initiated would go on even without, let's say, me being there or whatever, but, but to, to give to the people living in a neighborhood the capability and the desire, and more the desire, 
to want to continue this discussion, want to continue this uh, and not have it suddenly closed off. Well, we did that. Now we can go on. No, yeah, we did that. But what else? Yeah, I love this. This is great. And we're going to continue this conversation with Daniel Callahan. But Ron, thank you so much for giving us an overview. Thank you, Sam. Listeners, to see more of Ron's work, visit bostonapp.org. If you like this podcast, then you will love Design Museum Everywhere. It's a museum that comes to you wherever you are. That's right. Design Museum Everywhere is all about making design education and inspiration accessible to everyone. Become a member today and join a global community of design thought leaders and change makers. Everyone can be a designer. We can all appreciate and advocate for the transformational impact that design can have. Membership starts at just $3 a month and you get access to virtual Design Museum live events, discounts, and our Design Museum magazine sent right to your doorstep. Just go to designmuseumeverywhere.org to join today, and your name will be listed in our next issue of Design Museum magazine, which will be sent to Design Museum members all over the world. That's designmuseumeverywhere.org to be part of this global community. Okay, we're back and we're joined by our special guest, Daniel Callahan. Daniel is a multimedia artist, filmmaker, and designer. He merges a plethora of mediums to create immersive experiences that explore human resilience and mysticism. Daniel is the president of Roxbury Cultural District, which aims to identify, recognize, and amplify Roxbury's cultural assets and establish the tools, strategies, and resources that elevate the community of Roxbury as a living repository of arts and cultural expression from the past, present, and the future. He is best known for his painterly technique of masking, a ritual painting of the face used to reveal rather than conceal one's inner essence. Daniel and his work have been featured at the Museum of Fine Arts, the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, the Institute of Contemporary Art, the New Orleans Museum of Art, and the Queens Museum, just to name a few. Daniel's designs bridge the gap between art, artist, observer, and environment. Daniel, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I love the audio format because we can't see anything. Yeah. <laughs> um, but maybe you could describe like what makes your art immersive. And then, yes, I got to hear about masking as well. Yeah, sure. I mean, what makes my art immersive, I think sort of in the eye of the beholder, I guess you would have to ask people who have experienced my art, you know, like I, I think it's immersive, but I think I'm drawn to immersive experiences. Growing up in the church, art and uh, spirituality have always been linked with me and have always, it's always been a way to interface with the spiritual world. And so that has carried over in the, in the work that I do. While I'm not, I wouldn't consider myself, you know, a religious person. I'm certainly a spiritual person. And um, that connection is, is something that I always try to, to imbue my art with. But I think just naturally being drawn to experiences that are complete, but that also require some transformation, you know, where you leave the experience not being the same as you entered it. And so it's gone from music where I am still am a performance artist through music. And that sort of immersive experience where music is, is you know, 100, uh, 360 degrees um, and it's, you know, coming through your ears on both sides and stereo, um, the vibration you're hearing in your chest, um, you're, you're, you're staring at, you know, a performance and oftentimes you're, you're actually involved in that performance, you know, you're clapping your hands, you're singing along. So it's just that sort of a, like immersiveness is something that I always try to bring to all of my work. And then, yeah, tell us about masking. What's that technique? And it, I'm already tied into the spiritual nature 
of it. So let's hear it. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, so masking really started. I moved to California to do music for a while, and we um, were doing a lot of youth work. I'll give you the, sort of the long the long answer, but I, I, we were doing a lot of youth work there um, around the arts, and we had we had access to a lot of different communities through our youth work, and we wanted to put on an event where we could bring all those communities together to really sort of celebrate our different cultures, uh, because the Bay Area where we're at is very diverse, a lot of different people. And uh, everyone has their own cultural tradition. And so we put on this ball, but we didn't want to do the sort of Victorian thing where people came with masks that would sort of cover their faces. So we said, well, let's just paint the masks on people. And it was really through us looking at traditions of body decoration that have happened, you know, throughout the course of human history all over the world that we really started to realize the power of that, the power of the ability to, to change how one looks, but to to also engage with the sort of creativity of, of creation and to transform in a way that is linked directly to one's own identity, one's own culture, and to do that communally. Um, and so that was the first time we performed as a band in California was at this huge masquerade ball that we put on. And we had you know, traditions, many different like cultural traditions. We had Aztec dancing, we had Brazilian capoeira, we had hip hop, spoken word. We had uh, all different types of cuisine from different cultures. So it was like really this amazing sort of cultural melting pot. And so that was my introduction to masking. But when I came back to Boston, I was really missing that whole community and I felt very lost. And it was, it was uh, you know, my, my career as, as a performing artist wasn't going anywhere and definitely felt uh, depressed and I really went back to the masking really just for like a self therapy. Um, it was a way for me to like, just clear my mind zone in, you know, I didn't need to speak to anyone. I didn't need to say anything, but I just was able to have time with myself to sort of figure out my life. And, um, that's really when I started masking here in Boston. Uh, and so that's branched out to a whole lot of other things that, that I'd love to talk about, but that was, that was pretty much my introduction to masking. That's really cool. Reminds me, Ron and I were just talking about like thinking about people first and the identity of individuals and then a group mm. which leads to my next question you know, we're talking about common space and common good and roxbury culture district is a common space or maybe it's it's a collection of common spaces i'm curious what what does common space mean to you and mean to the roxbury community yeah that's a good question i mean when i think of common space I think of space that is sort of unowned, where not one person has the rights to it in the exclusion of others. And so I think of really the whole planet is a common space. We like to think that we own things, but that's really kind of like a fabrication of our, our little sort of human thinking. This whole world's a common space. And to me, that means that there's a common responsibility. There's also an ability for people to come together without any other agenda than to, to just enjoy the space and enjoy each other. And I think common space is, is the sort of last platform for, you know, things like democracy, things like community, you know, they all re require common space. This has been great here. I've got the masking especially, but now hearing about common space and I'm thinking to myself is that one aspect of common space is to discover common spaces and to discover common spaces by asking people, What's their common space? You know, what's their space? Where do they go? I, it's kind of what Sam and I were talking about earlier, trying to home in on something a little bit specific, at least, that for a group of people, 
comprises a common space. And then sort of seeing how that evolves, if it does evolve, or maybe it just collapses after a while. But, but using input from individuals to come together, if you will, on identifying that corner, that block, that whatever as our common space. Yeah, I mean, I think also like, you know, the energy, I, I, like, I like what you said in terms of people creating common space, the energy that we each have as, as sort of entities, when, when we come together, we change the space. And, you know, and likewise, the space changes us, right? When a space is designed in a certain way, it will literally change our behavior and our worldview. And so I think that's really important too, like understanding that people create their own spaces um, in a sort of more immaterial way, but also that the material space, the material world also affects that as well. Yeah, they're, they're responding, you know, to what is around them. And, you, and you've got me thinking, Daniel, and Ron, feel free to jump in this as well, that, you know, it's up to designers, planners, citizens, that we kind of have to protect these spaces or or generate them and then protect them because there's so many other interests vying for these spaces. I love what you said, Daniel, that like the world is a common space. And then all of a sudden it gets sort of like divided up into who owns what and who can go where. This was maybe pre-COVID, but I just kept getting struck over and over walking around Boston where I live. They're like, there's very few places where I could just go and be without spending money, right? Like, where can I actually just like have an experience with a group of people? And so to, this could be to both of you, like, how do you carve out those spaces? Or if they already exist, how do you protect them from the, all the various interests that, you know, and maybe Daniel talking about how you all advocated for the cultural district, because that seems like was a huge effort <laughs> in defining and, and protecting a space. I got to say, Daniel, that your Nubian Nights was an example of that. It was basically using the uh, bowling building in Roxbury as a platform, the windows in the bowling building as a platform for jazz. There were video uh, videos of jazz performers and all surrounding the building. And it just collected people. And it just became this thing. But uh, it was triggered by the idea that says, almost, I'm making this up, why not, let's do this and let's see what happens. And what happened was that in my case, I went back there, I think eight out of the nine nights that it was up because I just liked the music. I liked the fact that the people were there, they were self sort of congregating, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So it's thinking about what is the, what are the triggers that will pay homage to this space and to the people who will be occupying this space and then going on from there. Yeah. Yeah. No, I definitely appreciate it. Uh, I appreciate it seeing you. Like it, that was, that was great too. Seeing people who came multiple times. Um, that was really important too, that people felt like, yeah, it was a space they could come and, and be like, like you were saying, Sam, they, there was no need to, to spend money to get in. There was no need to spend money to stay. You could stay as long as you wanted. And Sam, I do want to get back to, to, to C3 because I think there's a direct connection there. Um, but just to, to riff off of uh, Nubian Nights, yeah, I mean, the whole idea was really um, wonderful because it incorporated so many things. So, you know, it was it was the bowling building, but specifically it was the Jazz Urbane Cafe, which um, were scheduled to move in in 2021, but the pandemic, you know, totally changed that. 
And as you know, the pandemic has hit the arts and culture sector the most, the hardest. Um, and so it was a way for us to help to activate that space with them um, and for them to be able to showcase the, the, the culture that they were going to bring to the space um, before they could physically do so. Uh, and um, yeah, it was just it was just a wonderful way to to let people know that they could come to to Nubian Square after dark. You know, a lot of people don't think that's a place to be after dark. But uh, there are businesses there and there'll be more businesses. And by bringing foot traffic there, we, we wanted to, to let people know what was coming, but also let people know what was there already. Um, and so it was a great sort of melting of, of all these different sort of things into this, this one nice special space um, that we created. But to get back to, um, to C3, so C3, just for folks who probably have no idea what that is, it, it was an attempt by me and several other artists, arts advocates, arts administrators, to come together to create a, a, um, a response to a bid for a space in the seaport. And we imagined um, basically a center for the um, arts of the African diaspora um, in the seaport. Um, and it was really important for us in that particular space because uh, you know, the seaport is um, the window to, you know, to the ocean, uh, the specific ocean where, where African people of African descent came through, um, who were, were enslaved, who were kidnapped. And there's a whole, I mean, there's just a whole lot of history there, especially, you know, Boston, uh, Massachusetts being, you know, one, one of the first colonies to, 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 um, you know, make slavery, uh, uh, legal. And also we're one of the first to, to, um, ban it. But that history was really important for us to, to create a space uh, at the seaport for that that heritage. Um, and I definitely want to shout out uh, you, Sam, um, you know, and, and Design Museum for really coming in and supporting us. You know, we didn't end up getting the bid, but I think what was important was that we ended up sort of disrupting that process uh, of, of just, you know, space becoming available and that being sort of scooped up by whoever has the most money and things happening without really a lot of community input. And, uh, obviously the sort of segregation that, that happens in Boston, that, that is so ingrained in this, in, in this place, um, sort of the regurgitation of that. And so we wanted to disrupt that. And so we, you know, we put together a proposal, we got support, um, from folks uh, and it, it really, you know, uh, woke some people up. Um, and so that in and of itself was was important and good for us, even though we, we weren't able to get the space. Yeah, I mean, the journey itself, I think for me, for many others opened our eyes. I mean, I was also, a, you know, a reaction to the seaport being just extremely white focused. There's like big businesses and not a lot of racial diversity. And I, that's why I loved that project in particular because it said, we're going to create this space. Like we are going to advocate for it. We need it. And again, it goes back to what Ron was saying about it was led by people, right? Um, and people who saw a need and again, didn't ultimately happen, but the conversation is going to lead somewhere. Yeah. And shout out to, shout out to, uh, Lamurchi and, and, and Ash Gordon and, and Carrie and Tiffany and, and, uh, Alenza you know, they're, they're still trying to push to, to, you know, that, that initiative. And I, and I really appreciate, appreciate them doing that. I, I kind of have moved on, but you know, yeah, they're, they're still fighting for that um, in, in all the different ways. So shout out to the whole team. To both of you, what tools, um, processes have you seen to be effective for a group of people to come together and say either, Hey, we need a space or B, we have a space, but we got to, 
protect it. We got to define it as something that's you know community led. I think that one of the requirements is, I said earlier, asking questions and continuing to push that um, and making sure that the people of whom you're asking the questions represent as wide a variety of stakeholders, if you will, uh, or players in this, that it's not because that if, let's say, some, you know, use a cheesy example, if it's somebody in the state legislature, yes, God damn it, go after that person and continue to go after that person and make sure that that person is engaged or make sure that person responds, even if the responses are get out of my face, but nevertheless, and then continue to do that and then sort of see what you can come up with. And uh, from that, not only see what you can come up with, but see where are the mutual benefits that have been, that emerge out of this, that up until then had been hidden. But, uh, you know, I didn't think about that. And they say, yeah, so what if, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe again, I'm being naive. I don't think so. But, but again, where are the mutual benefits? And I keep on coming back to this statement I heard expressed uh, by a woman whose name I forgot. She headed up uh, Art Place America back, I don't know how long ago. She talked about how they evaluate grant applications. And one of the key criteria that they use for the applications is how the applicant addresses the question directly or otherwise. What is it we can do together that we can't do separately? And that has become a uh, sort of marching order for me, but continuing to ask that question. Daniel, I'm curious, how does or how can art play a role in this? I, I, you know, thinking about Nubian Nights and thinking about sort of the ephemeral or nomadic programming that can be brought to a space that can help sort of define it in people's minds. How, how does that happen in your community? And does it help then say sort of like, oh, that is a common space because it's got a mural or it's got a sculpture. And we know collectively that it's almost like naming something, right? You know, you name it and then it exists. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's um, putting your, I don't want to say, I don't even want to say Mark. I think it's adding your flavor to the space, you know, like, and I, I want to shout out sort of black market in terms of the work they've been doing in Nubian square. Like if you go into Nubian square, it's, it's it, the whole thing is like a, you know, an art, an art piece at this point, you know, they've done so many murals over there and they're not the only ones there's, you know, there's, there's many folks and, and shout out to, to, um, to pro black and a bunch of other mural artists who, who really just done a lot of work around there. And I think, I think it does help. I think it, it, it tells you what the local culture is there. Um, and you know, when you have Mel King, uh, you know, like a 50 foot mural of Mel King, you know, uh, uh, that tells you about the values of a community and, 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 there's this conversation around sort of the Confederate statues and stuff like that, right? Like, you know, those things do matter. Like they, they have, they tell you what the, the value of a, of a space is um, and who's valued there. So I think that's really important. Um, I also think though, that um, oftentimes they can be a little skin deep if that's all that's happening. You know, like if, if you're just, if we're just doing a bunch of murals, like that's great, but like, how, how is that, as we've seen from the the, the the iconic mural in Roxbury of Mandela, like that was removed, you know, like, um, so there, there's not as much of uh, a, a sort of, when, when you talk about sort of protecting space, you know, like that can only go so far. 
um, because murals can be moved as easily as, you know, as buildings and people, you know, what is, what are the infrastructures of support that you can create? Like, you know, like how, how can we create an environment that where, where, um, you know, kids from the age of three to the age of 75 uh, can, can make art and feel like they have support to do that um, and feel like that's valued in the community. I think that's, that's the harder work. That's like the, you know, not only legislative, but, you know, um, communal, um, you know, organizing, that's fundraising, that's, uh, you know, that's the, the real meat and potatoes of, uh, of sort of the work. Yeah, yeah, that 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 strikes me too. You know, Ron, you mentioned art, art place America. I've always appreciated that a lot of these, not a lot, some of these place making or place keeping foundations really understand it's not just about a place, but all the things that are going to happen within it. Right? You can create the most beautiful common space in the world, but it, to your point, Daniel, if there's not the context and connection to people, so, so much so that there's going to be events, there's going to be a market, there's going to be art that maybe shifts every couple months. I think one, one, one aspect of what you guys are saying too is what are the takeaways? That somebody goes to a place and experiences whatever it is that's there. Is there anything that's been thought about that could trigger in the viewer's, the participant's mind something that he or she will go, will take away with him or her? And go and begin to maybe do something, you know, to, to sort of not make it, as I said, a one-off and done. It's something that somehow has a continuity embedded in it. Don't know how it's going to work out. That's okay. You're not supposed to know how it's going to work out. But you at least allow for something to work out. Yeah. <laughs> That's what, when we would do, you know, placemaking or placekeeping projects pre-COVID. You know, we'd go to the space, listen, understand, and be like, well, what's it going to be? And we're like, well... We don't know yet. <laughs> and we all have to be okay with the fact that we don't know what it is. But we're just, we should be happy that we're all talking to each other. Mm -hmm. Like that's like, you know, A number one. That's the beginning. And I always used to say when we would do like town halls, that'd be like, we should, even if something doesn't get produced, we should be all be so happy that we made these connections that we talked. Like that could be the outcome. And we could all walk away with like big smiles on our faces. Now, if something comes of it and we actually create piece of art or an installation that's going to help define the space and and bring people together like that's the that's icing on the cake but this goes back to what you were saying in the first segment Ron. it's like about people about connecting and um if you can connect into that place like you've really done it i would love to hear from both of you your favorite common space all right and remember this is an audio <laughs> medium so i would love to hear what it is and then you know, take us there. What's it like? What makes it special for you? One immediately pops up, pops in my head. It's one of my favorite places in the city of Boston. And that is the Arnold Arboretum because it is, it's a beautiful space that, that represents to me what it looks like when, when humans are caretakers of, of the earth. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, we can create spaces where we can exist, coexist with nature. You know, it's not the wilderness, but it's, uh, it's allowing, you know, trees to grow, allowing, uh, animals to gather. I've seen deer in there. It's, it's like, it's just an amazing magical, magical place. And it's a, this is a shameless, shameless plug. Uh, we like those here. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm I'm working with the Arboretum to to put on a masquerade ball in the Arboretum in 2022. Oh, uh-huh. yeah. All right. Yeah. So I, you know, I'll be talking with both of you all around that. Um, just to to, come to 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 participate in 2022 July. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. So that's 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 my spot. You know, besides besides Nubian Square. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Nice. Cool. Thank you, Daniel. Ron, how about you? You got a favorite? common space i gotta say that uh what comes to my mind is not here in boston it's uh barcelona Mm. one of the squares whose name i cannot unfortunately remember but just the the accumulation of people who are there who are standing sitting lot whatever they're doing and also surrounded by whatever they're were surrounded by those buildings um it just and Barcelona is a city is one of my favorite places, favorite common spaces. So um, I'm going to let it go with that. I don't want to overindulge. No, let's all travel to Barcelona. That sounds like a plan to me. Daniel and Ron, thank you so much for being here, for sharing your expertise, your experience. It's been a lot of fun to chat. Thank you. Thank you, Daniel. Absolutely. Thank you. Listeners, to see more of Daniel's work, go to danielcallahan.com and we'll post a link. And now it's that time, my favorite time of the week. Every week we share our weekly dose of good design, our examples of good, thoughtful design that has impacted us or others in a meaningful way. I'll kick us off. This week, I'm very grateful. I have a weekly dose from our amazing director of operations, Rachel Bosenberg. Rachel shares designing motherhood, a first of its kind consideration of the arc of human reproduction through the lens of design. Designing Motherhood started as an Instagram account, and it's now a book, exhibition, and more. It's all about the things that make and break our births. Michelle Millar Fisher, Amber Winnick, and a host of other collaborators explore motherhood from the lens of more than 80 designs, iconic, archaic, quotidian, and taboo, that have defined the arc of human reproduction. So the team at Designing Motherhood is partnering with Penn Design to bring conversations about that arc to design studios and design history classrooms. And they even kicked off a series of public programs at Design Philadelphia in October 2020, culminated uh, in another program for Design Philly in October 2021. So we'll post a link to Designing Motherhood in our show notes. I'm so excited to check it out. Of course, I'm not a mother. I am a father, but I'm about to have my third child. So I'm going to read up about motherhood and share some (laughs) strategies and insights with Nicole to help us out with baby number three, which is coming in March. So thank you, Rachel, for sharing that. And Ron, you're up next. What's your weekly dose? There's an artist, Ragnar Kjartansson, whose work has been at the ICA, uh, particularly this piece called The Visitors, which is a series of videos of musicians sitting in different rooms in a big old house up in upstate New York playing this song goes on for about 45 minutes. Uh, And then they all come together toward the end and walk down this hill, followed by a bunch of people who are sitting on the the outside. The book about uh, Kjartansson is a series of interviews as well as photographs of his work. And uh, he talks a lot about not only the visual pieces, but the performative aspects of it, that they're very much interlinked and uh, so it's how something gets made uh, that 
is really was really God only knows impressive. And if people haven't yet, yet seen, it'll be back because it's part of their permanent collection at the ICA. But definitely go see the visitors. But this this book, and I wish I could remember the exact title. Uh, it's a collection of, as I said, interviews as well as photographs of uh, the work that he's done, and um, it's unlike anything I've come across in in uh, a hell of a long time. And I think it speaks to some of what we were talking about this afternoon. Mm-hmm. Cool. I'll definitely check that out. That's awesome. Listeners, if you have a great weekly dose of good design, you can share it with me and I'll share it on the air. So you can tweet or share it with me on Twitter at Sam Aquilano. Ron, thank you again. I feel like you and I have had so many conversations and we got to record this one. So I'm grateful for you being here. I appreciate it very much. Thank you, Sam. That's our show. Again, I want to thank Ron Malice and Daniel Callahan for joining us. And thank you all for listening. We'll post links to the resources we discussed today on our episode page. Visit designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on podcast. That's where you'll find some great links. You can always find the latest from Design Museum on social media. On Twitter, we're at design underscore museum. And on Instagram, we're at design museum everywhere. You can also find us on LinkedIn and Facebook as well. Also, we have an awesome weekly email newsletter. It goes out right to your inbox, lets you know all the great things that are coming up from Design Museum Everywhere. So check that out. You can sign up right on our website. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to Design Is Everywhere anywhere you listen to podcasts. Your ratings and reviews not only make me feel great, but they also help us reach more people so that we can continue to chat about the transformative power of design each week. We so appreciate your support. Thanks for doing that. This episode was written, edited, and produced by Amor Yates. Our theme music is Orange Sunset by One Wave. For the entire team here at Design Museum Everywhere, thanks for being here, and we'll talk again next week.